Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, sir. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. It's the award-winning Space Boffins podcast with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists and for our first podcast of 2013, Why Space is Bad for You, a new use for the International Space Station and crisis management tips from an Apollo 13 flight director. There were a lot of things going wrong. The problem was that easy to figure out what was the root cause of this apparent chaos. Our studio guests are the anaesthetists, Wellcome Trust Public Engagement Fellow and expert in the effects of long-duration spaceflight, Dr Kevin Fong from University College London. And our space boffins regular, Space Kate, Kate Arkless-Gray, will be looking forward to an exciting year ahead in space exploration. Now, Kevin, before we get going, I read in one of the interviews you've done that you wanted to be an astronaut since the Apollo-Soyuz missions of the, of the mid-70s. Now, we're almost 40 years on. Is it looking any more likely? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure I'm going to quite fulfil that professional ambition now. I, 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 I was in a European astronaut selection in 2009 and sadly I made it through a few rounds but not to the important final round so I'm going to have to earn an awful lot of money and get someone to... So uh, you're prepared to pay it yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Speaking of being prepared to do anything to get into space, Kate, <laughs> well no, we, I, I mean that in a nice, caring <laughs> kindly way, um, we, we've documented haven't we, you know, in, the, in previous podcasts how you, you're really making a, an impact in getting closer and closer to your dream, do you think you'll be any closer to it in 2000? I don't know. I've, I've actually just caught news of a, a competition that's being run this year to send 22 people worldwide on, I think it'll be a suborbital flight. So one person from the UK might get to go. So I think that might be my, my new thing for this year. You oh. probably shouldn't tell anyone that though, should you? No, I didn't mention the competition. It's okay. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> now, living in space can seriously damage your health. Don't take my word for it. Here's Shamila Bhattacharya, who I met recently at NASA's Ames Research Centre in Silicon Valley, California. There is a reduction in bone density. There is a loss of muscle. Vision can be affected. So there's a variety of different effects that can happen. And all these effects that you talk about, they're all caused by being in a zero-gravity or microgravity environment. No, that's not the whole thing. Some of the effects we think are also caused by radiation. Now, so far, the shuttle and the International Space Station is at a somewhat more benign radiation level-wise, more benign environment. However, when we go outside of the Earth's protective magnetosphere, we will be exposed to more radiation. And so in addition to microgravity, there's also the effect of this highly ionizing radiation that will impact uh, biological organisms and systems that we also would like to understand better. 
Now, you've got one of your experiments on yes. the, the table here, if I yes. just move that. Yes. And these are small boxes around the size, of, I suppose, of a, a large matchbox. Exactly. And they are crawling <laughs> inside with fruit flies. Yes, exactly. So this was an experiment that we flew a few years ago, and we were interested in looking at the changes of the immune system. So we wanted to use the fruit fly model, whose innate immune system is very, very uh, well characterized at the molecular level. And w- what we did is we sent up a cohort of flies to space, and then we actually had the analogous set, so the, their sibling, if you will, an identical batch on the ground, treated exactly the same, except that they hadn't gone up to space. And then we compared, after space flight, when we got the flies back, we compared a variety of different measures of uh, immune system changes between space flight and ground. And what did you find? Yes, we, it was very exciting because we found that there were di- distinct uh, differences between the space-flown animals and the ground-flown animals. We found there was a reduction in the function of the blood cells in terms of how well they were able to phagocytose. Phagocytosis is a process whereby the blood cell can engulf invading microorganisms to protect the body against an infection. And we found that there was a reduction in efficiency of that process from the space-flown animals. We found also that there was a reduction in blood cell numbers. We found that there was also a change in the expression of genes and molecular biological changes that we measured uh, from the animals from space. Does this mean that humans leaving the Earth, going into deep space, away from the low-Earth orbit are going to face this as a serious problem, that they're going to be more susceptible to disease? They may well be, yes. Shamila Bhattacharya from NASA Ames with her fruit flies. Kevin, Shamila listed quite an alarming list there of things that can go wrong. How worrying is that list if we're genuinely considering manned missions to the Moon and Mars? When it comes to human missions to Mars... People are, are the weak link in the chain. We've been chucking stuff at Mars since you know the mid seventies and hitting it not all the time, but <laughs> you know usually hitting it. And and, and uh, when it comes to mission design, adding people into the equation, wrapping systems of life support around them, and then projecting them across that void and hoping they stay healthy, it changes the problem by an order of magnitude at least. I think so. So we do need to worry. And that experiment there was talking only about you know the, the immune system which they're only really beginning to understand in space you know, i must admit that's the first time i i've heard about effects on the immune system can that be sort of accurately transposed from fruit flies to to human beings have there been experiments on astronauts on their immune systems so, so it's, it's interesting because the we've done animal models in other areas between animals and and people in space so so muscle wasting in rats for example is not the same in rats as it is in humans so the amount that you can extrapolate directly is limited however what was really interesting about her experiment is that there was a, that they knew that astronauts became immunosuppressed but they said well look there's lots of things that immunosuppress you that may not be unique to the space environment so if you're really stressed like, say, if you're hurtling around the Earth at 17,000 miles an hour with death a couple of inches away, trying to get a multi-billion dollar mission done and not fail, those things might stress you out and immunocompromise you without you having to be in space at all. 
But that experiment, what it elegantly demonstrates is that actually if you're flies and you probably don't know you've gone into space uh, and you absolutely control very carefully the ground population against the guys who are flying, you still see those, those problems. So there is probably something specific to the space environment that impairs your immune system. Does this perhaps give more weight to the prospect of one-way trips to, say, Mars rather than there and back? Because then you're halving the sort of potential effects on, on the human body. There are so many other problems on top of that. You know, your muscles waste, your bones weight, your heart, which itself is a muscle, begins to decondition, your blood vessels get all floppy, your hand-eye coordination gets shot, and I could go on and on and on. And that is all if everything goes right. You know, that's before you start to think about what happens if you have to do some first aid in space or, or indeed some advanced trauma life support. Then, then it gets really messy. And so with all of that, because those problems are so formidable, there's been a, a revival of this, this one-way mission idea. You know, and in fact, there's something called Mars Zero going on at the moment. <laughs> they're actually they're, they're sort of semi-academically looking at the feasibility of one-way missions. But, you know, this always crops up, I think, in exploration, this idea that it's, if it's a dangerous place and we're not sure how we can get there and get back, then getting there might be all right. Um, it came up during the, the, the lunar missions as well. So I think people will talk about it. I think it's an interesting academic exercise. I'm not sure that we will ever do that as a proper mission. Kate, um, I was just wondering, I'm sure there's been some experiments done in space that have found that viruses and things become more infectious. So if you couple that with your immune system being, being suppressed. suppressed, then you might really have a big problem. So what would you, you know, what kind of angle would you take trying to control the number of viruses on station or doing something to make your immune system stronger? So that is true, actually. Uh, there is a well-characterised increase in virulence of viruses when you send them into space. Uh, and then there's a weird thing that happens that the genes of the virus get upregulated to make it, uh, some of them at least, to make them more harmful. Uh, and yes, the big worry is that that, that coupled with impaired immunity is, is going to leave your astronauts at massive risk. And there is no short answer to that, you know, because no one's been out there for those periods of time. So they're just about to kick off some truly long-duration space station missions over a year's duration to try and start probing some of these longer-term issues. But but it's going to be hard. But even then, with those long-duration space station missions, as Shamila was saying, they're within the Earth's magnetic bubble, the, the magnetosphere. When you go beyond that, a mission to a long-duration mission to even to the moon and certainly to, to Mars, you're just bombarded with all this stuff from the sun as well. Yes, and... and, and you know, most of my area, the stuff that I've looked at, has, has been about the effects of the absence of gravitational loading. And in fact, uh, most of the research I did when I was at NASA looked at the artificial gravity pilot study, which looked at spinning vehicles or centrifuging astronauts to try and combat the gravity. But then, of course, you are left with uh, this this huge problem of, of radiation. And outside of the Earth's magnetosphere, you are unshielded from that heavy, charged uh, flux of, of, of particles that comes from the sun during uh, solar, part, solar flares. And, and um, 
There's not a good answer to that at the moment. That stuff cuts straight through your vehicle and you and strips out your bone marrow and every other rapidly dividing cell population. And, and you know, if you are in space and you get a solar flare going off, it is like standing next to a neutron bomb. You know, it kills you in exactly the same and way. And it turns you into the Incredible Hulk as well. Well, well do you know what? That would be the least of their problems because then there'd just be like six indestructible green people flying through the space as opposed to just... Dead people. You mentioned you touched on your work at NASA there. I love the name of the, the office that you worked at, the Human Adaptation and Countermeasures Office. The countermeasures. I love that that thought of what what were they weighing what up against? Yes, I, I mean I always thought it sounded a bit sinister. Really, <laughs> uh, I, they never used to refer to it by the whole name. It was always Hack D or Heyco or something. You know, that's what NASA does. <laughs> it just has to <laughs> make it into something you can say as a word. But uh, it was a fantastic office, and it was it was brilliant. And I was a very peripheral part to it. But I used to sit in my office thinking about this artificial gravity problem as part of a much larger team. But I was next to a couple of computer um, boffin whiz kids across the hall from a cardiologist, down the way from a couple of proper rocket scientists. And, and, and you know, you all used to get together and have very interesting coffee mornings. So it, 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 it was great fun while I was there. And, I, uh, and you, f- you founded in London the Centre for Altitude, Space and Extreme Environment Medicine. What's it saying? What, it, it, to look at the human body, the effects of the human body, not just in space, then at other extreme altitudes and yes, places I mean, on Earth? I mean, that's right. So my, clinically, in my day job as a doctor, I, the thing I'm interested in is anaesthesia and intensive care. And that is all about the body when exposed to the extremes of disease. But it occurred to us and a couple of my friends who are interested in exploration just generally, that the, the hu- human body, when exposed to physical extremes, uh, it is an interesting thing for us to explore. So it's a team of people who are interested in mountaineering and diving and spaceflight, and we set that up uh, about 15 years ago now uh, to allow us to continue to explore that. So part of the team is going off to Everest uh, again this year. I carry on tinkering with spaceflight. But it was, yeah, it, it, it was something that well, we, we didn't expect to be as successful as it was. And having just gone through all these horrors of spaceflight, you still both want to go into space? Yes. Well, yeah. And me, and me Rich, and me. And you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I, have to, I have to qualify that, because th- there's a real problem in, in that people think of space as a single destination. That's a big problem, uh, and it's not. You know, low Earth orbit is as different from the Moon, is as different from Mars, m- more different from each other than the continents of the Earth. Uh, and, and so... I will take a ticket into low Earth orbit. I'll take one to the moon, probably. I think quite hard about Mars, to be honest with you, with current technology. Okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm the same actually. I, I'm. I'm not convinced about Mars. For for me personally, I think the journey is a bit too long. And if you do decide to come back, I mean, you've seen from the uh, Mars 500 experiment on their way home, they had a really hard time of it. They were bored. They were lethargic. They had nothing really to look forward to, and it was a very long time home. So I think the moon would be a good one for me. So. Yep, I'll. Um, I can't really say Mars because it might ruin my marriage. But uh, definitely, yes, low Earth orbit and uh, the Moon it'll ruin, in a shot. It'll ruin more than your marriage. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just settle for a couple of weeks in the Mediterranean. Uh, this is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists, and still to come, how to remain cool in a space crisis. Now, if all goes to plan, you'll soon be able to view live pictures of the Earth from space, courtesy of HD cameras being installed on the outside of the International Space Station. The service, a bit like a 
live Google Earth will be provided by Canadian company Earthcast, with the cameras being made in the UK. Well, the director and president of Earthcast, Scott Larson, told me what to expect. You will get a near-to-real-time view of Earth from space. The cameras are mounted on the outside of the space station. Space station goes on Earth about 15 times a day uh, in kind of an orbit. So you go to the site and you'll see a live view of Earth from space. And at the same time, you can interact with the archive data. So you can enter in your address and you can find out when it was above there last, which might be last week or two weeks ago or four weeks ago. And you can choose each of those dates. And then at the same time, because we know where the space station is, you can enter in your address and find out when it's going to be above you next. So you can go outside and you can hold your event, your social wedding, outdoor sports day around when you're going to be imaged from space. So you'll know that it's coming over and you'll plan something. What if there's a cloud? Well, that's an issue. And, you know, we can't control the weather, of course. Uh, there's a couple things. One is, certainly depending on where you are, the space station comes on quite often. So if you're in London, it'll be over you every few days. One camera's pointed directly down. The other camera is on, is on a pointable platform. So we can direct with that. So we can, uh, to a certain extent, point around clouds. And if there's a noteworthy event, if there's a football match, if there's something that is noteworthy, I might still be able to pick it up. But clouds, night, things like that, we can't, uh, it is what it is. I think to, to some extent, many people don't even know that there's a space station there in the first place. So this will actually alert them to the fact that there is this space station with six people on board. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, space station is... Um, is a joint project between the Russian, American, uh, European, Japanese, and the Canadian space agencies. Uh, they've spent a lot of time and money on it. And uh, one of the things that we think uh, Earthcast will do will increase the awareness of the space station. And so uh, in talking to our partners, that's, that was certainly one of the key benefits that they wanted to get out of what we're doing. Director of Earthcast, Scott Larson. Well, each of the two cameras looks a bit like an amateur telescope and features a cylinder around, I don't know, a metre long or so. I went to see these cameras taking shape at RAL Space in Oxfordshire, where I spoke to engineers Ed Jones and Ian Tosh, who explained the challenges of installation. We deliver this to Moscow and the Russians install it in the Progress Supply Module. And it docks with the space station and inside the cosmonauts open the hatch pull it inside the space station, which isn't easy in itself because trying to manoeuvre such a long structure within the space station put quite con- uh, severe constraints on us. Do you know that's going to work? I mean, have you, have you looked at the hatches and the, and the yep. corners and all the angles and all <laughs> exactly. the rest of it? We have detailed specifications from the Russians. We're not allowed to have any sharp corners anywhere. Uh, we need handles in the correct position to handle this so the Russians can manoeuvre around the space station correctly. Then... When we're ready to install outside, also the cosmonauts will get suited up into the airlock and then they take this outside and install it on the platform and plug it in and, hey, presto, we should be working fairly quickly after that. This is completely unlike the sorts of things you're used to, which is to, to build a satellite, stick it on the top of a rocket and blast it into orbit, then off it goes. Exactly. When we usually deliver something to the rocket to get installed, that's the last we touch of it. This human interaction we've got now is quite new to us in terms of the handles need to be sized correctly for the cosmonauts with their space gloves on. One of the requirements we have is you should be able to take a 50-newton kick by a cosmonaut because they're moving around the space station. That's very specific. Yes, (laughs) it's what they uh, specify. Um, As they're moving around the space station when they're installing it, if they slip, then they're going to try and put their boot back down and our camera needs to be able to survive them giving a bit of a kick. 
is it quite exciting that this is going to be handled by people installed in space rather than just sent into into orbit and then you'll be able to see the results on your on your screen we'll all be able to see the results it certainly makes it more interesting for a pub discussion rather than i'm an optical design engineer and okay right so talk to someone else (laughs) but now it's going on the space station and we'll be able to have real live video makes it much more exciting for everyone Ian Tosh and Ed Jones from Railspace. And I've just had an email from Railspace that says delivery to the Russians is now expected in the summer. Uh, Now, Kate and Kevin, this is pretty exciting, isn't it? Yeah, well, I I always love seeing pictures from space. Um, I've been incredibly lucky in that I've had personal pictures taken of where I live by somebody on the space station. So (laughs) I I know how exciting that was for me. Whether I would organise a wedding around having it photographed from space, I don't don't know. I just thought of Howard Wallowitz and the Big Bang Theory. (laughs) Yes, it's what what they do. But I think people have this idea somehow that uh, Google Earth is is live or even uses pictures that are contemporary. I mean, the, the, the one of our house is probably, what, about five years out of date now. So I think it's exciting to have these these live pictures from space. Oh, it is, and I think it's you know NASA exploiting that. Everyone who flies in space in low Earth orbit says that one of the most amazing things is, is looking out of the windows and seeing the Earth below. And and before this, they they you know they they tried to bring some of that home in their own ways. A mate of mine who flew um, Dan Tanney, who flew uh, STS one twenty, I think was the last thing uh, he flew on took some photos from space and and I was really interested to hear about how hard it is to get your images from space because he says you you don't think about it but you're flying by the earth at such a rate that if you t- if you want to take a photo of london say you have to pan you know <laughs> as as you fly by it at 17,000 miles blur. an hour just yeah. <laughs> so so but they they've known this for a long time and this is a huge exploitable popular benefit you know that that we we forget that until the dawn of the human space flight program no one had really seen images of the earth before and so you know this is a natural thing to do and it's going to be very wonderful i'm sure well it's uh, shaping up to be quite a, an interesting year ahead in space not least the the high definition cameras there going being installed on the space station kate what would you say are your sort of highlights or your tips for what you find particularly tickles your fancy there's a, a few kind of interesting things for the uk we've got the strand one launch which should happen in february yeah we've we've, uh, we've covered, covered that, that. A, it's a good one yeah i'm also quite interested i know it hasn't had as much coverage as i would have hoped it would have had but the um, recent ministerial council at ESA and the UK actually put in a lot of money and into to projects that we haven't previously supported, like ELIPS, which is you know connected to a lot of microgravity research. So I'll be very interested to see you know what comes of that. And we finally put some money into the International Space Station. If you look back the last five years, the UK has always been a relatively minor player in the European Space Agency. Now, the UK is the third largest funder overall of the European Space Agency. I never thought I'd hear that. And we don't (laughs) even, the UK does not even put money into rockets. And a lot of the money from the French goes into Ariana's mass and goes into the big rockets. The UK does not put money into rockets. And yet to put money into the International Space Station and the Orion capsule, which will be America's new spacecraft it's incredibly exciting I think and I'm really hoping that that will see perhaps a change in the way that other ESA countries view the UK because I've you know when I was at 
Space University over the summer, occasionally out of all, you know, UK, well, they only they only fund things that are going to give them a benefit. They're not team players. So hopefully that will really make a good change for us. What other highlights have you got? Look at NASA. I haven't actually got NASA too much. I've been looking more at what's going to happen with commercial space flight. So perhaps this is the year that Cygnus, which is the... Uh, SpaceX Dragon equivalent from Orbital, maybe that will reach the space station this year. Um, Obviously, SpaceX will be continuing their resupply missions. Fingers crossed that all those things go well. Maybe it'll be the year that we see Branson's Spaceship 2 or X-Corps' Lynx go up into space. When's the chance of a a European astronaut going into space? Uh, Well, sadly, it won't be the UK's finest, but uh, Luca Parmitano from Italy will be going up this year, so it'll be nice to have another friendly Italian on station. (laughs) To go with your mate Paolo. Absolutely. I think we should look out for the Chinese. Uh, I think they're going to be doing more in the way of uh, human space flights. That's always an interesting one to watch. I, I have a couple of Russian... Russian ones, which um, may not have you know, come up on your radar before, but there's talk of the Soyuz rocket being able to launch and dock with the space station within four orbits. Because currently it takes about two days before you, you dock with the space station. And it's station. a horrible journey, by all accounts. I've in, spoken in everyone tiny, I've spoken to. Capsule. So you've got this capsule with the connected to another little bit, which is a living area, which looks like something out of East Germany in the 1970s. It's grim inside. It's and it spins sphere. all the time. So uh, you can't even look out of the window because the, uh, the cosmonauts get sick. Yeah, you're in these kind of small, almost like little Victorian bathtubs squished in. You know, the seats are designed specially for you to keep you in. And I've I've actually sat in one and it is, I can fit in, so please send me. Um, (laughs) But I'm quite small. I can't imagine what tall Paolo or, or Luca... Well, you know, how will they survive in that? Uh, no, they're meant to be absolutely horrific. I mm. mean, you, you have a seating order when you enter you, because you, if you don't go in in the right order, you don't get in. I mean, it's like trying to get sort of four teenage blokes in, <laughs> in, 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 the, in the back of a mini or Ford Escort Mark One <laughs> sort of thing. You know, it's that old sort of you know on your way back from the pub type deal. And that's interesting, really. The the you know early dock from launch because they. All of the vehicles that go to a uh, space station take longer than you think they should, you know, because it's 250-odd miles travelling at the best part of 17,000 miles an hour, so you think it shouldn't really take days to get there. Mm. And yet all of that is because of the safety aspects, isn't it? You don't really ever want to point the thing directly at the space station in case your brakes fail. <laughs> you go straight through the thing. So I'll be interested to see... And the Russians have got form on and that. They've, got, they've yeah. got total form on that. And, 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 and you know, even their low-velocity collisions of the past during Mir were nearly catastrophic for the programme and the crew on board. I mean, there, there have been historically very good reasons why we don't go quickly to, to station. Um, and uh, so it will be interesting. I, I, I think the same as you. Everyone I've ever spoken to who's flown them says, yeah, it's not, the, it's not the nicest ride in the world. When they come through the hatch, I, I've done a couple now of the, the launch commentaries for, for ESA on these, and you see them come through the hatch, and they do. they look just green or white, and they're not happy. And certainly Paolo Nespoli, when he went onto the station after, I think it's a couple of days in space on Soyuz, he looked miserable, utterly miserable. And they try and smile for the cameras, they really don't look happy at all. I don't think he looked particularly happy when he landed either. That's that's only a couple of hours coming down from station that way, but then you land with a bit of a bump. The, the second big Russian thing, I mean, we talk about the International Space Station being completed. There was a big fanfare about that being finished and done and it's built. Well, it's only the US 
segment that's built. The Russians are still going to be putting modules up. And actually in December this year, they're planning to launch the multi-purpose laboratory module, which will be their largest scientific module with interior and exterior lab space. And I think that will be an interesting thing to see. Bit of a shake-up of station. Excellent. So we've got a lot to look forward to. And no NASA. Ah, really and interesting. The one other thing which I cannot fail to mention is, of course, the first ever Canadian commander of the space station, Commander Chris Hadfield, the Canadian astronaut who has been absolutely amazing while he's been up on station. I, I don't know how he finds time to tweet and Facebook and be on Reddit, and he's even recorded songs from station. Oh, it sounds cool. And you've met him, haven't you? Yes, I yes I have. He's rather been. lovely. You can follow him on Twitter, actually. Yes, you can. It's uh, CMDR for Commander underscore Hadfield. Well, all self-respecting space boffins are familiar with the words in large friendly letters on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, don't panic. Easy to say, but what if you're in space and it all goes horribly wrong? As it did on the way to the moon in April 1970. Dan, we've got one more item for you when you get a chance. We'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tanks. In addition, uh, I have a shaft and trunnion okay. for a look at the Comet Bennett if you need it. Stand by. Okay, yes, uh, we've had a problem here. Can say again, please? Uh-huh. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Main B bus undervolt. Roger, main B undervolt. Stand by 13, we're looking at it. We had a pretty large bang associated with the um, caution and warning there. The explosion on Apollo 13. Well, as we know, remarkably, the three astronauts survived thanks to the efforts of Mission Control in Houston. Well, one of the flight directors on duty that day was Glyn Lunny. He was just coming on shift to relieve Gene Krantz when the accident happened. Now, I recently recorded an interview with Glyn in the Apollo control room for our BBC Radio 4 programme, For All Mankind. While I was there, I took the opportunity to ask him about his experiences with Apollo 13. There were a lot of warning lights on the consoles here in the control center. The cockpit was lit up with warning lights. Fuel cells were kicking offline. Cryo tanks looked like they were going down. Communications was patchy. There were a lot of things going wrong. The problem was that easy to figure out what was the root cause of this apparent chaos. And it took about, oh, 15 or 20 minutes for people to put the the bang that was reported and the fact that things were spewing out into space uh, and the fact that some of, one of the oxygen tank was going to zero and the other one was falling. People at first didn't want to believe all that. In 15 or 20 minutes, people began to accept that that was really the case. We, we were not going to land on the moon. We were going to be working on survival of this crew and getting them back home. But, 15, 20 minutes, that still sounds quite a, a long time. And was the pressure on to just make a decision, to, to do something straight away? We had learned the hard way many times in, in training and simulations that you can't just do something because I feel like I need to do something now. So whatever we would choose to do had to have a reason for it. It had to be thought out, and you had to be pretty confident that you were contributing to the solution of the problem. That means... The solution doesn't mean you're making the problem go away. It can mean you just understand it better. Now, without going through all all the events, because our listeners will be very familiar with this, I guess one question, how realistic is the film? Well, the Apollo 13 film is realistic in terms of the mood and the feeling, and it conveys certainly the sense of what goes on in the control center and what goes on with the crew. The movie also 
put all of the things that people did into just a few personalities. What was spread out all over three or four shifts of people doing this or that ended up in the movie being all lumped in, into one. I guess they couldn't afford that many movie stars. The, they, they said, you know, that's the way we make movies, so okay. Some of the things were accentuated for uh, theatrical effect, I guess. For example, the carbon dioxide. The movie portrays it as something that we didn't know it was going to be bad until the light went on. The truth is we have people following this flight in back rooms, engineering teams, and when I, by the time I had slowed down enough to start assessing what we needed, we did talk about the carbon dioxide, and that was about eight hours into my shift. And when we talked about it, the guys in the back room, the engineering team, came on the net and said, Glenn, uh, we got a team of people, we know this from the beginning, we got a team of people working on it, and uh, they're going to have an answer in a couple shifts as to what we can do to lash something together to take care of the carbon dioxide scrubbing. At which point I said, good, I don't have to worry about that anymore because those guys are good, they'll figure it out and tell me when they're ready. Uh, Very briefly, I've watched that film, it's my favourite film. I've watched that film I probably 20 times. I can never quite believe that they make it back alive. Was there any point during the mission that you thought they're not going to make it? Mm-mm. No. 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 Uh, nobody thought that way. I had a sinking spell at some point in there like, holy mackerel, this, this is really bad. What if I stepped into here? I had a reaction like that to it, but it went away immediately. We were not of an age to spend time wringing our hands. That We didn't do that. Uh, so our our whole motivation, our whole outlook was, what can we do to make it work? What can we do to make it better? What can we do to assure that we're going to get them back okay? Some pretty good crisis management tips there from Apollo flight director Glenn Lunny, who is my new official space hero. He actually sounds like a superhero. He talks like oh, one. He's, Holy he mackerel. Was lovely. Only he was, Batman would say that. I, I don't think I would use just the phrase mackerel. It was also lovely when he w- was in there. We, we, we did the interview in the original Apollo control room, which is preserved as a national monument. And he described it as a church to him. Uh, and it was extraordinary because the atmosphere, it was just the two of us. And he was sitting there in the flight director's chair and I was sitting beside him. And Kevin, then I got to sat in the flight director's Kevin, chair and take I, a picture. I've seen it through a glass. I've been there oh. but seen it through a glass. Well, Kevin, you're, well, you're busted. Well, no, so. but it was, it was funny because I remember the first time I went out there, uh, you know, I was with some, some friends. We were looking through that glass window and, and it, it's there almost in state, you know, with the slide rule scattered on the desks and, and all of these Bakelite telephones and their handsets. And the first time I saw that, I thought, wow, you know, it's like as if they just got up and left and they left it in the state. And, of course, that's what you'd do. You'd leave it as this monument to the history. You know, no one's probably ever allowed to go in there. And then this group of Cub Scouts come touring through, <laughs> sitting on desks, punching buttons and phoning each other up. And you're like, oh, OK. Uh, and that control room actually was used beyond uh, Apollo. You mentioned Apollo Soyuz, I think we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast. It was used for that. It was even used for the early shuttle flights, that same control room. Now what's slightly weird is you've got the this control room preserved as it was in Apollo. Then the floor below is the shiny new International Space Station control room, but in exactly the same space, in exactly the same sort of layout Like as a well. parallel universe. It is really <laughs> weird. So you step out into the corridor from the space station control room and you're in the 21st century. You step back in and you're suddenly in the 1960s. It's very odd. Uh, and so some of that weirdness is because, you know, they keep the layouts the same. They don't do their sort of... Oh, that's- rework the feng shui on the mission control room because because you know people are trained on that as as an architecture and as a floor plan layout and that all helps 
in those moments. You know, you don't want to have been used to turning over there to look for your flight director, and then suddenly, you no, know, that's where Fido is. <laughs> but but it is uh, that story is an incredible how to do it video of real time crisis management. In fact, I you know I've written an editorial about it uh, for the British Journal of Anaesthesia, comparing the way that they do that in real time and what we do in medicine. There's lots of parallels. You know that whole thing that you point out in the interview of it sounds like it's a long time, fifty minutes to know what goes wrong. But when something blows up inside a complicated mechanism, whether that's a spacecraft or a human body, realization just creeps. And all the time you're trying to fight to keep it or the person alive. Uh, before you can fault trace and then do something. And so we have more to learn from that in medicine than than people probably think. I felt my take-home message from that was, however massive the crisis is, you've always got time. You've always got some sort of thinking time, whether it's seconds or minutes or hours. And it's not that kind of run around and wave your hands in the air. It's think it through methodically. No, that's absolutely true. And and, and it's exactly the problem that uh, uh, Lunny... Uh, articulates there that Hollywood has made us believe that everything unpacks in 90 to 100 minutes uh, <laughs> uh, uh, with about three people involved. Unless it's a hobbit, it was uh, about three hours. <laughs> but, you know. yeah, 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 of walking. <laughs> uh, and and, and uh, there's actually two things. One is things, there is always time. And the second common theme in people who face these situations in which people's lives are on the line and something has to be done and it looks super grim is this a kind of almost irrational optimism, I, I guess. I, I interviewed a, a, a guy called Sully Sullenberger, who, who was the pilot who landed Flight 1549 in the Hudson so famously a couple of years ago as part of a Horizon documentary that's, that's going out later this year. And, and I said to him the same thing. I said, didn't you have a moment? You've lost two engines. You're at 3,000 feet. You've got no power. Didn't you have a moment where you thought, I'm going to die and everybody on this plane is going to die? And he, he was exactly the same in his response. He said, nope. <laughs> and you're like, really? <laughs> really? Because it doesn't look like that's to anybody else. Oh, very impressive. Well, um, if you haven't heard the radio programme that features Glyn Lunny, as well as other amazing people talking about the moon, the programme For All Mankind, which Boffin Media produced, is presented by Chris Riley, and it's about to be repeated by the BBC. We're delighted to hear, and we'll let you know when that is on our Facebook page. Uh, speaking of which, I promised to post on Facebook the sounds of Earth carried on the Voyager spacecraft that we featured in our last podcast. I didn't do that. I promise I will. And that's the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists and we're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium as well as by a grant from the UK Space Agency. Thank you very much to our guest, Kevin Fong, who has a book out in mid-March called Extremes, which is about how technology changes our expectation of survival. And I've been assured that there is a chapter there on space about Mars. And There's course, two chapters. Oh, even better. Double the pleasure. And also Kate Arkless Gray, who blogs under the name Space Kate. Do follow us on Facebook or tweet us at Space Boffins. I'm Sue Nelson. And I'm Richard Hollingham. We're back in a month. Thanks for listening.